Good evening, listeners. Welcome to another Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Jane. Uh, Vivian Langford has brought us a, a, an interview with Stephen Bygrave tonight. We also have Stephen Main, a shareholder activist, uh, at a presentation he gave in late April. And Felicity Milner from Environmental Justice Victoria is coming in. I, as a shareholder activist, have put together what I call the uh, the world's biggest small share portfolio. So I've got uh, 650 holdings, uh, and the whole portfolio is only worth about $20,000. So the average is sort of six shares worth uh, 20 bucks or something like that. And the reason for doing that is to facilitate uh, shareholder activism. So you can see what companies are saying, because you are a shareholder, and you can receive their correspondence. So you can attend the AGM without having to go through the hassle of finding a proxy because you're not allowed to speak at an AGM unless you are, you are a bona fide shareholder or a proxy holder. And it also gives you a status uh, in the media and status to write to the company as a shareholder. And it's quite hard work. It's you know, a lot of paperwork and, and maintaining that is a real pain in the butt. But it is very, very important in terms of one of the tools of being um, uh, a shareholder activist. Now, it is a bit lonely, actually, being a, a retail uh, shareholder activist. Uh, I used to work for the Australian Shareholders Association, and we had literally three and a half staff. Uh, and we're up against the Australian, if, if, if you want to look at it in combative terms, we're up against the Australian Institute of Company Directors, which have 189 staff and have uh, $26 million a year in revenues. So what you might think would be a mass movement of retail shareholders, all 7 million of us, up against a small elite club of directors is actually completely the, the reverse when you think about the resourcing and the capacity that the two advocates for the two respective groups have. One of the things I've done over the years to try and be a shareholder activist is to run for boards. So I've now run for 47, and I've had about $400 billion worth of stock voted against me. I think that's also possibly a, um, a world record. I would much rather put up a shareholder resolution on the issue that is on my mind. Uh, but under Australian law, uh, I have to get 100 wet signatures from different shareholders who all, all own a marketable parcel of shares worth more than $500. Uh, and I just don't have the time or the resources to spend three or four days going around getting 100 wet signatures to put up my resolution. And then as you'll hear with the Commonwealth Bank case, uh, even when you try to do that, it's very limiting in terms of what sort of resolution you can put up. And the only really safe way to put up a resolution is to change the constitution. People have a very conservative approach to changing the constitution. It's ridiculously easy to run for boards. You can't do it in the US. It's impossible. You've got to pay for your own message to go out. But if you want someone to send a little blurb about you to a million shareholders, it takes you two minutes to nominate, put your platform in and out you go. They can't reject you. Um, and so... That's why I do it, because it's easy, but then it gets a confused message because it, it comes down to, well, I'm trying to get on the board, but my issue is the fact that David Jones has a 35% shopping discount for the directors that the shareholders don't get. So you, you wanted to put up a resolution saying, please have the same shopping discount for all the shareholders. And David Jones said, no, we're going to censor your platform and you're running for the board. And so I couldn't even explain what the platform was because everyone was just focused on, well, why would you be a director? You're anti the company. You wouldn't be a good director. Why would we vote for you? What's your record? So it distracts from the main game, which you want to talk about. Uh, so, and then once you've done it 47 times, you're a serial pest, you're a serial <laughs> candidate, 
and it tends to lose its impact. So back in the good old days before people worked out how to vote against, I got 58% of the vote at the uh, Woolworths, I got 44% at the NRMA and 40% of the Commonwealth Bank. And these days I'm often uh, under 1% and the directors, they all know how to construct the ballot papers to say, we recommend you vote here against this guy. So the whole system is now making it very difficult to uh, effectively get a good vote has been my experience and it gets a bit depressing when you you run for Fairfax and you get you know 0.92% of the vote as a professional journalist who's you know supposedly chair of the finance committee at the city of Melbourne but for a public company no 99.2% say we don't want you but then I drilled down to the figures and Fairfax are one of the few companies that released this to me I said, well, can you give me the breakdown on votes and voters? And it turns out that 902 Fairfax shareholders voted for me to get on the board and only 645 voted against. So I had something like 66% of the support of the, of the popular shareholders by shareholder. In other words, all the small guys, the small shareholders said, sure. And that demonstrates how the big end of town absolutely dominates the vote. So the turnout at Australian uh, corporate elections in terms of the percentage of shareholders who vote is only about 5% now. It's, it's been falling, but it's down to 5%. And that's because, partly because there's a sense of powerlessness of the retail investors that they vote for that guy on the Fairfax board and they just get swamped by the big end of town. So one of the reforms that I think is very important is that we start to mandate companies to release the voting results by votes and by voters. So they've got the data, and if they released that, small shareholders would feel a lot more energised. So when GetUp puts up their resolution about Woolworths and poker machines, I'm pretty sure that a majority of the voters would have said, yes, Woolworths should be getting out of the poker machines, we don't like that. But the, the media message was 97.5% vote against GetUp's resolution, and the issue died from that moment. And if GetUp was then able to say, but 65% of those who chose to vote supported us would have been a very different uh, media messaging and the board would have been forced to pay attention to the retail shareholders as a class. The other one, the reforms we need in Australia is we need disclosure of how those big funds are voting. So it's compulsory in America. Here some do it voluntarily, but it's not compulsory. So you have no visibility into how the big boys are voting. So I ran for the board of AFIC a couple of years ago, which is the biggest listed investment company. They've got 100,000 retail shareholders. And the platform was, disclose how you vote. Because you're representing 100,000 small guys. There's no institutions who own AFIC. No, we refuse to do that. We'd rather just talk to the company. And I was defeated quite comfortably there as well. So that visibility into voting would be a great thing. Now, the one resolution that I have put up in 47 failed board tilts and 400 AGM attendances was actually in America. Because America has a wonderful system whereby if you own $2,000 worth of shares continuously for 12 months, you can put up a resolution that goes on the ballot, a non-binding resolution. Therefore, the Americans have hundreds of these every year. You know, all sorts of climate resolutions and political donations, but it's just part of the landscape in America because of this great case that was won in 1970 against Dow Chemical, uh, where some US doctors uh, took them to the court and said, we want to put a resolution up about selling napalm in the context of the Vietnam War, and the judge said, yes, that is reasonable. 
So the only time I've done it was when Rupert Murdoch moved his company to Delaware from Adelaide, and I used to go to his meeting every year and annoy him. I'd run for his board and all this sort of stuff. And he doesn't quite believe in free speech because he's the only guy who, when I ran for his board, completely censored the platform and didn't even tell the shareholders how old I was. Andrew Bolt, free speech, yeah, maybe, but when you're running for the board against News Corp's boss, no free speech at all. Not one word actually said about the candidate who had stood. So when he went to Delaware, he was open to shareholder resolution. So I was sitting out there in Templestowe and I faxed 6th Avenue, New York with my shareholder resolution and I'll read it to you. It said that the News Corporation Board of Directors submit a proposal to holders of Class A and B shares within the next 12 months, which, if approved, would create a company with just one class of share. In other words, get rid of the gerrymander that would make Sir Joby Peterson blush, the system where Rupert controls the company and is head of the most powerful family in the world because 70% of the shares don't get a vote. And he owns 13% of the, st- of the shares and 40% of the votes. So I've got a resolution to get rid of that. And next thing I know, the SEC, the US regulator, is intervening and ruling that News Corp must run my resolution because in America, the company has to send it off to the regulator before they reject it as being inappropriate. And the regulator said, fine, put it up. So up it went, and it was supported by 22.9% of the total shares and 60% of the neutrals. So take out Rupert and his mate John Malone, and it was $5 billion worth of stock. And I was just one guy in Templestowe faxing New York and and had that impact on the world's most powerful media mogul. If we had that tool in Australia, what could we do? Now, I must admit, the frustration of not being able to put up resolutions has probably played out at the City of Melbourne because I tallied up the number of resolutions I've put up since I've been on council, and it was actually 29 in 29 months. And, uh, and basically, we've been able to turn City of Melbourne into Australia's most open and transparent council by way of resolutions, by way of motions put up by one councillor, persuade everyone else to support it, and now we're revealing our executive pay, our lease register, our most valuable properties, our register of conflicts of interest. So this is why ACCR and Environmental Justice Australia are doing in taking the Commonwealth Bank to court is very important. Because at the moment, the non-binding vote in Australia, the non-binding resolution that just comments on the management's operation of the company, but doesn't actually cause something to change, is able to be rejected and usually is. There's been dozens and dozens of times where you know, the TWU year after year would petition the Qantas board about the way they're managing the company and Qantas would reject it and say, no, this is an operational issue for the company to manage, we reject it. And it never sees a light of day. And the finance sector unions had the same experience with the banks. Probably six or seven proposed resolutions to the banks have been rejected. So that's why the Wilderness Society in 2002 had probably the best success in terms of uh, environmentally focused resolutions when they put up changes to the Commonwealth Bank and the National Australia Bank constitutions to get them out of old growth logging, to stop financing old growth logging. And they were supported by 21 and 23% respectively of the shares voted at those 2002 AGM. So that was one of the, the great sort of high watermarks. But when you go through and look at some of the other ones, and there's only been, I can only come up with 35 examples of where 100 signatures have been successfully gathered in the last 20 years. And of those 35, about 20 of them relate to resolutions where there was actually a vote, a for and against, and most of the balance were what's called a section 249P, which is a good tool, and that allows a 1,000 word statement. So you can have a statement bagging the management, but there's no then vote to say we agree with the statement. 
So uh, the 249P often is twinned with a resolution so you can have a comprehensive statement to support your constitutional change. But in terms of recent outcomes, I mean, the ACCR, all they wanted was something quite reasonable, which is uh, for ANZ and Commonwealth Bank to um, re release how much greenhouse financing they're doing. So they release their own emissions, but how much is their estimated financing of carbon emissions? And the boards rejected the idea of a non-binding advisory resolution and instead forced the constitutional change, which is the much more dramatic and draconian one. The result, 2.95% support, and the Commonwealth Bank, 3.15% support. So you can't even see how many shareholders voted, just the votes. Companies themselves, like Suncorp, Toll and Orica, have all had their own proposed changes to the constitution of the company rejected by shareholders. So shareholders are very conservative. Other ones, um, Santos was a rare case where they were told to uh, an advisory vote effectively to get out of their Narrabri project. And Sandoz actually got only 0.78% of their shareholders that was the votes supported that. So Sandoz took that as a mandate for their own coal seam gas operation in Narrabri, or their proposed project. And that can work for companies. Why not just put it to the vote and let the shareholders decide? So Sandoz is in the minority and doesn't often do that. When both Howard and Aquila Resources were given advisory resolutions, again, by, uh, this time by Australian Ethical Investment, the board declined to put it to the vote but did put the statement out. So again, you got that statement, that 249P, but you didn't get the actual vote. And there's nothing quite as powerful as a vote. A vote really can do things. And the non-binding vote is a non-confrontational way or a, a non-binding way for the shareholders to express their concerns. So Santos, 23.5% against their remuneration report at the Adelaide AGM. So last year they were crowing, about 99.2% back us in Narrabri, they're cowering because the big shareholders have sent them a message through the REM report and they can do that confidently that they're not blowing up the company because it hasn't forced them to close Narrabri, it hasn't cost them any money, it's just a non-binding message. And wouldn't it be great if we had, if we had that sort of uh, system here in Australia? Even the threat of a resolution would have a big, profound impact. I mean, I, all I have to do is say I'm thinking of running for the board and it is amazing what companies will do. So boards, you know, no one's ever run for their board before. No one's ever put up a resolution to them before. They're not used to this. Management absolutely dominate and monopolise the topics and subjects which are voted on at AGMs. It's such a rarity that they recoil in shock at the mere prospect of something happening. And I can tell you from sitting at council meetings on the other side, when someone comes along and presents powerfully, it, you know, it really does have an impact. Same with the AGM. That's why the AGM is such a beautiful... A beautiful thing because it's the one day of the year that the company board, the whole board is fronting up in public. And you see how they go. You ask them unscripted questions. You test them. They can't control the environment. They, they're often terrified about what's going to happen. And you'll often get calls three days before and, are you coming? Any issues we can sort you out with? <laughs> and I'll often say, look, I, I haven't worked out what I'm going to say. I usually work that out when I sit and listen to the chairman's address. And I'll just go with the flow. And the half the thing is testing them. And you see, you, know, you see what they're like. So the AGM is a much underutilised uh, vehicle for shareholder accountability. I encourage you all to start coming to AGMs. I mean, at Council, we've introduced 15 minutes of public questions at the beginning and the end of every committee meeting, which is 5.30 at the Town Hall, the first two Tuesdays of every month. And we will usually get none 
one, if we're lucky, a month. So come along, ask the heart unscripted questions and test us, because that's what it's there for. And it's the same at the AGM. And I often go to an AGM and say, I don't want to say a word, but my job is to underwrite the debate. So I'll hopefully sit here and sit back and watch a great battle and great debate going on. And often these days it's worse than ever in terms of it'll often just be the Australian Shareholder Association which is speaking and maybe one or two others. And in that situation I'll say, all right, you know, we'll get on with it and we'll have a, have a bit of fun and we'll ask a few questions. Because if these companies knew what they were doing, they would actually put a whole bunch of stooges in to filibuster and, and then, you know, make it difficult to get to the microphone. Rupert was outrageous. I flew all the way to LA last year and uh, he actually said, it's a two-question limit. And I said, but no, no one's here to ask... There's no-one else asking questions. No, no, Mr. Man, it's a two-question limit. And so literally it just became a ding-dong about you don't believe in free speech. But he literally turned off the microphone and then the security guard took the microphone away. So we'd have to go across to the other side of the room to keep asking questions. So, so Rupert's the worst, always has been, but companies are very conscious of it. So if all of a sudden they had to address in writing... Uh, these considered resolutions, and go onto the ASX website and read the Commonwealth Bank and the, Commonwealth and the ANZ's response to the very well-argued ACCR resolutions on unburnable carbon, the speculative bubble, um, the fact that the fossil fuel industry is predicting they will produce three, burn three times as much carbon as the current political settings will allow. It's really well-argued. And seeing how they respond to that in writing is great to get them on the record. It's just a shame we don't see more of the mainstream media actually running with these arguments. So I can tell you, their board will have talked for quite a bit of time about that. There will have been quite a few drafts going back and forth because they're sending it to a million shareholders. I mean, it's a free direct mail for the ACCR. And so imagine if we could all do it a whole lot more easily, how that would change the debate, engage with major public companies on all issues, industrial relations, environmental, political donations, performance. And if we can then get this judge to actually tell the companies that you must actually allow non-binding advisory motions that comment on the management operations of the company rather than this ridiculous constitutional issue where we always have to change the constitution or run for the board and there's no other option... I think it will change, change, seriously change the landscape in terms of shareholder activism in Australia. So in Australia, the, you know, for me, the biggest weakness is this lack of an ability to put up resolutions. One other great thing we have which is underutilised is world's best access to the auditors. We can write to them. They have to write back to us. You can ask for meetings. You can ask them questions at the AGM. And it's a very good way to get the attention of the board and the audit committee if you just write a polite little letter to the, audit, the auditor and say, are you satisfied that you are accounting for the carbon risk in these mines? Are you satisfied? And can you tell me the process you went through to satisfy yourself that this estimate of remediation or liabilities or carbon exposure is accurate? And so it's another way to get under the bedsheets and actually force a few things to happen is to write that well-targeted letter to the auditor so it's all about the tools in the toolbox. We've got some good ones that we don't use well enough, uh, but we'd love to have a couple more, which this court case might tick over. And, of course, then the 100, the 100 signature rule would be an absolute beauty if we can get that. Uh, we wouldn't have to do any more silly board tilts. We'd be uh, putting up resolutions uh, in a tenor, tenor season, and it would really change the debate. 
And that's Stephen Main talking at an event hosted by the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility uh, in Melbourne in April this year. Uh, as you heard, Stephen illustrated how the current system and system of flagging shareholder concern is broken, where currently you have to run for the board or implement a constitutional change. So we only have this unwieldy mechanism for tabling a statement or a resolution yeah, is currently the only way to get public companies to address address concerns. So coming up also at that Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility evening was Felicity Milner from the Environmental Environmental Justice Australia and EJA has uh, paired with ACCR in launching a case against the Commonwealth Bank in order to try and get uh, a change or a clarity in Australian law regarding shareholders' rights to have a say in how their companies are run. So I have Felicity Milner from Environmental Justice Australia with us in the studio tonight. Welcome, Felicity. Thank you. That was Stephen that we just heard talking at the ACCR uh, presentation in April. Uh, We heard him talking, alluding a little bit, I'm afraid some of it was taken out in editing, but alluding to this court case which you've been working on with the ACCR and the Commonwealth, against the Commonwealth Bank. Can you talk... Talk to us a little bit about that. Yep. So we're the lawyers for the um, Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility and the case, it's actually been heard in the federal court and we're waiting a decision, but the case is about whether or not shareholders have the right to have um, a resolution distributed to all the shareholders and then voted on it at AGM. Um, in this particular case, the resolution that our client wanted voted on related to the Commonwealth Bank and whether or not it had to uh, report report on its um, financed carbon liability, um, which basically means um, the clients were asking the Commonwealth Bank to tell its shareholders um, what uh, fossil fuels it's financing and mm. what um, um, that may not be, and project, fossil fuel projects that may not, their value may not be able to re- be realised in the event that governments um, legislate to limit carbon emissions so that um, our global warming levels don't go beyond two degrees Celsius. Right, so the court case is looking to... uh, It's a specific instance of resolutions not in play or not currently in play that's being challenged, is it? Yeah, so that's the specific resolution. So in in the event that we win the case, that resolution can go to next year's AGM or Mm. this year's AGM, I should say, uh, before the Commonwealth Bank. But So that's what the specific um, resolution that the case is about. But if we succeed, um, it'll open up that right to put those resolutions for shareholders generally and it'll have much broader application. So it can be used to bring attention to companies' environmental behaviours but also their human rights, their procurement, if they're funding political parties, all sorts of, I mean, any question basically Mm. um, that is relevant to the um, matters of the AGM and the annual report will be able to put, be put um, to shareholders for a vote at AGM. Sure. And from, as we heard from Stephen Mayne, this would be a a massive change to the way uh, management of companies are challenged uh, by shareholders to date. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It'll just it'll provide a really important avenue for what we call corporate democracy it'll, mm. or shareholder democracy. It'll give shareholders that opportunity to have that much more direct um, interaction with the companies and let them know they can't direct the directors what to do, but mm. it'll let them um, make their opinions very clear to the directors about how the directors are doing their jobs. That's right, and elicit specific answers on specific 
specific questions as yeah, court. That's right. Well, your company, your organisation is Environmental Justice Australia, and um, can you tell us uh, what, what's the definition of environmental justice? Uh, our short definition, or we like to describe ourselves as lawyers for the for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are a public interest um, community legal centre. We and we do just. Um, whether or not we take on a matter and whether or not we do something is whether we think that it has the potential to improve the way that our environment is protected. Um, we do two main sorts of work, really. We do the litigation and the advice work, so like the ACCR case, and we also do advocacy and we um, advocate on how we think environmental laws, or not just environmental laws, I should say, laws generally need to be improved in order to protect the environment and stop things like dangerous climate change and biodiversity hmm. loss and those sorts of things. So how does uh, how do issues come to the EJA or the issues that do come to you? How do you select which ones to champion? Um, well, we select a few issues to champion ourselves. Mm. So uh, for, for example, at the moment we've started a campaign around clean air, basically saying that um, our laws don't protect people's health and um, clean and, um, and air pollution is inadequately regulated mm-hmm. um, and we would like to see federal laws improving that situation. Uh, so that's a campaign we've started ourselves because we recognise that the laws were failing in this particular aspect and there was a gap. Um, otherwise, people... Uh, we have well-established networks. So we used to be the Environment Defenders Office Victoria. So our organisation okay. has relaunched as Environmental Justice Australia last year. So we're, that organisation under that aim uh, under that name is about a year old, but we actually have been around for about twenty years. Right. Yes. So we do have good networks with community groups and with environment groups. So they know that we're legal experts, and if they have a legal issue, they can come and speak to us. Members which, of, of which is is that what happened with ACCR, ACCR? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They, they sought they, you out to mount that case. Yep. yep, and they actually, I think they'd worked with one of our lawyers in another context, and so yeah, mm. they came to us. So how how does um, environmental justice compare in Australia with say some of the other OECD uh, countries? Are we <laughs> o- on a par? Just generally, generally, Felicity, are we? Yeah, I, I'd suspect that we're we're not on a path. Certainly, the concept of environmental justice is much more developed in um, the US and in Canada and those sorts of things. Um, and there has actually been specific law reform in the US to try and make environmental justice not just a you know a concept, but actually to put those rights in Implement law. Implement it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and. In Europe as well, I think the concepts of environmental justice are more advanced and have more legal standing. In Australia, there are arguably aspects of environmental justice that are actually enshrined in law and implemented, but as a concept, it's not really... People who suffer environmental injustice aren't um, really protected very well by Australian laws. And Environmental Justice Australia is interested in enshrining uh, environmental environmental concerns into the human rights Charter? Yeah, that's one aspect of our work, Mm -hmm. yes. So um, the the new Victorian government is conducting a review of its human rights charter um, and that at the moment um, has a series of civil and political rights that government has to consider in all its decisions. Um, We've just made a submission arguing that environmental rights should be um, inserted into that charter as well, so the right to a clean environment, but also a series of... um, civil rights and social rights. So civil rights, like the ability of communities to participate in decision-making in a meaningful way, we've asked for that right because 
um, we think that that would improve environmental justice. Obviously, if a community has the right to have a say and they feel like they're being treated unjustly, they can they can put that to the decision maker. Um, we also think that social um, and economic rights are important so that people you know, aren't worrying about where their next dollar might come from and then they can engage in more sort of um, less immediate public interest issues like um, environment protection. Okay, so there's the Human Rights Charter and there's also the EJA is looking at um, enshrining uh, more environmental considerations into the climate change legislation. Yes, so the Climate Change Act um, was put in place in law by the... um, Brumby government back in, I think it was 2010 or 11, um, and it was wound back a bit under the former government, and now the new Victorian government is again, they're doing a series of reviews at the moment, and one of mm. the reviews is to the clim- into the Climate Change Act and how they can make it work better. Um, and related to that, we have developed a specific proposal, and we think it's quite innovative as well, and it me- it's called the Climate Charter, and it operates in a similar way to the Human Rights Charter in that um, we set climate targets that we think Victoria as a state needs to meet in order to reduce the risk of climate change and properly address our carbon emissions. And then every decision the government makes um, in terms of, you know, whether it's the health minister or whether it's, you know, the Department of Environment or Planning or something, they have to consider um, whether that decision is going to affect our ability to meet those targets. And if it does affect our ability to meet those targets, they have to reconsider the decision and look at ways that they can implement the outcome they're looking in a way that causes less carbon emissions. And who works with EJA for, the, for these sort of uh, uh, fights that you're taking on? Are you a standalone sort of organisation or is there a community of uh, organisations who, who work for these changes? So we collaborate a lot and our collaborators vary from um, big environment groups, the likes of Environment Victoria, ACF. Um, on this specific matter, we'll be working with a, uh, Environment Victoria and Friends of the Earth Melbourne mm-hmm. um, on the climate stuff and, and potentially some other um, groups interested in the, the Climate Change Act itself. Um, depending on the issue, we work with community groups, we work with individuals who are active in this space. It, it really depends on the issue and who's doing work in that particular area. Um, but we do, yeah. I mean, in when we're um, in the case, when we're taking a court case, for example, we always need a client, so we have to, by definition, collaborate in those sorts of matters. But sure. in our advocacy and law f- reform, we do also tend to collaborate, just so that you know we can spread the message, and also to insert that legal expertise into other people's campaigns is another part of what we do. Okay, so we're back in the studio here. We've got a a bit of an activism theme going tonight and I've got Felicity Milner. Felicity, what was your uh, title at Environmental Justice Australia? I didn't say. (laughs) My title is Director of Litigation. Right. And you are, of course, a lawyer. So um, just coming back into what we were touching on before we went to that break, there's a a number of government reviews on at the moment. Uh, Two priority ones, I understand, are the Hazelwood Inquiry coming up. I think that's been reopened. It was opened and then shut and then it'll be reopened. And also uh, an inquiry into unconventional gas mining in Victoria. Uh, What's EJA's uh, interest in in either of those? Well, uh in relation to the Hazelwood inquiry, we in the last inquiry appeared for Environment Victoria and raised a series of issues in relation to the way that mines are regulated. We thought that if there were better mining laws, the risk, and particularly as they relate to rehabilitation, the um, the likelihood that the fire would have started in the first place would have been reduced. 
um, and we're continuing to act for Environment Victoria in relation to the mine rehabilitation issue, but we're also going to be acting in this new inquiry for Voices of the Valley um, and looking at whether the issue of the health impacts and whether there was a spike in deaths as a result of the Hazelwood fire. So that's an important environmental justice case that we'll be providing Absolutely. legal representation on. Yep. And then the other issue uh, is an important, everyone should write the date down in their diaries. Um, as you may, may know, there's a moratorium at the moment on coal seam gas and unconventional gas in Victoria, but the government is currently doing an inquiry to see, to look at the impacts of unconventional gas and see... Um, in essence, whether they're going to lift that moratorium or not. So um, community support expressing their concerns or otherwise about um, unconventional gas, I think it's important if we get lots of people making submissions. We'll be making a submission as well, but it's also good if members of the public get involved in that and send their submissions in by this Friday. Okay, so that's why the 10th of July submissions need to be in. When does that moratorium finish? What's the the date? They don't have a definite date at this stage, so it depends on the outcome of the inquiry and then they'll they'll look at... uh, They might not lift it. That's an option, and that's if we... um, That's something that a lot of people want to see is that uh, that moratorium made more permanent. Okay, so uh, just finishing up because we're rapidly running out of time. Um, where where can people find out more about EJA? Uh, so our website is www.envirojustice.org.au. We also, you can sign up to our e-bulletin. There's a number of inquiries coming up, not just the coal seam gas inquiry. And so if you want to stay in the loop with those inquiries, we'll give that information in our e-bulletin and you can sign up on our website. Fantastic. And I understand that your EJA is also, uh, will take donations if people feel uh, moved to donate money to help your causes. We will very gratefully, yes. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks very much for coming in, Felicity. And now we've got Stephen Bygraves talking to Vivian, uh, 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 reporting back on his recent trip to Europe. And I have Stephen Bygraves with me. He's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, and I've invited him to give us an update about progress towards the Zero Carbon Australia plan that we've read about for several years now, and we're hoping globally that this will be uh, the, the project, Zero Carbon. First, welcome back from UK, France, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, and Norway. Stephen. Hi, How are you? I'm good, thank you. But we'd like to know... Do you, what do you see in the trends in business and government? And I'd like to start with that meeting in Switzerland you went to of business leaders, and I'd like you to tell us about that and why Australian business should have been there. Look, thanks, Vivian. Um, the meeting in uh, Montreux in Switzerland was with the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, and they're a group of... Um, you know, over 100 leading businesses around the world who know that climate change is real. They um, recognise the science is uh, robust and they also realise that business needs to be part of the solution and that governments can only do so much. And these are some of the forward-leading, forward-thinking businesses who also see the various business and financial opportunities. Um, We've seen throughout history that companies come and go. Companies that thrive adapt uh, and adjust their business models and come up with solutions to address new ways of doing things. And these businesses recognise that climate change is happening and that they need to be part of the solution, but also that unless they adapt to this and unless they uh, address 
old, out-of-date business models and move the times that they will also go out of business. Can you tell us specifically some of the businesses that interested you? You must have heard quite a few presentations. Look, there are a lot of businesses there, um, and these are some of the larger multinational companies. And, um, you know, countries like uh, companies like Unilever, PepsiCo, um, DuPont... Um, you know, these are, these are some of the, you know, huge food conglomerates, uh, you know, Colgate, Kellogg's. Um, and the, the, the people who were there were, were coming up with solutions and, and, and targets for business separately to those targets being established by government. And so they were talking through nine different technology areas underneath what's called the low-carbon Technology Partnership Initiative. These companies have now since met again in Paris last week at the Business and Climate Summit, where again they were continuing their uh, finessing and uh, fine-tuning of the targets that they want to be announced, uh, that they want to announce at Paris in November, December this year as part of the international negotiation to say, Here's what we can do with renewables. Here's what we can do with business, uh, with, with uh, buildings. This is what we can do with agriculture and forestry. This is what we can do with cement. Uh, this is what we can do with mobility. And interestingly enough, many of the targets uh, being talked about correlate very neatly with BZD's research. But not only that... I was invited to present BZD's research to inform some of their deliberations around what targets uh, could be set. Okay, well, BZD's research has looked at the transport sector, the building sector and so on. Uh, within those sectors, where can you see the big decreases in emissions coming? Like aviation's one that I, I worry about increasing, you know, that sort of carbon footprint. Uh, buildings that are not efficient, you know, worldwide. Uh, where do you see the big um, push coming? Where will be the easiest gains to get decreases? Look, not too many surprises there, Vivian. Um, energy efficiency is um, cost-effective. It, it saves businesses and, and economies uh, money as well as addressing climate change. And the buildings group underneath the Low Carbon Technology Partnership Initiative identified uh, energy savings or reductions in energy consumption in the order of 50% across the world's buildings by 2030. Mm. Now, interestingly, Beyond Zero Emissions uh, Buildings Plan identifies uh, reductions in residential energy consumption of around 53% and reductions in uh, commercial buildings um, uh, non-residential energy efficiency building, uh, non-residential buildings energy efficiency improvements in the order or reductions in energy consumption in the order of 44%. So what the World Business Council is announcing around 50% is entirely consistent with BZD's research. On renewables, um, again, the world is moving very quickly in this area. We're seeing uh, breakthroughs uh, almost every week. And the World Business Council, again, targeting renewables as a, as a major area for advancement. Um, 
agriculture and forestry a bit of a forgotten area, but mm-hmm. but something that we all know is sitting there, uh, the big big elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about um, you know stopping deforestation, which again is consistent with the with mm-hmm. BZD's land use plan. Uh, rapid reforestation, uh, which again is consistent with the um, with the BZD land use report. Um, on transport, um, electrification of transport systems which can be electrified, mm. and these include vehicles, passenger vehicles, obviously, uh, rail systems. Um, and uh, moving to systems which are based on renewable energy. Aviation is the curly one, as mm. is shipping. Um, and uh, my view, as I've shared with you previously, is that any oil uh, that we're consuming needs to be, uh, you know, we, we need to be getting off fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. But as part of that transition, uh, those transport areas which which will need fossil fuel in the short term or biofuels mm. etc um, you know fossil fuels should be saved for those areas and we should be moving to electrical systems based on renewable energy to, to do everything else. Okay, you mentioned that um, these are business people working sort of outside what the government needs to be doing. We do expect governments to legislate the framework within which this can happen, but they're getting a move on. And I think perhaps worldwide people are a bit frustrated. People who know about climate change are frustrated by the slowness of government, the the frustrating way democracy even works. We'll talk a little bit later about councils, you know, the local government area. But is that the is that a feeling that that you picked up too? That business feels that they can lead, or civil society can lead in ways, you know, leaving government on the side. Is that is that starting to be the way things are going? Because the Paris summit will try and get governments to sign up to uh, certain targets, but it won't be good enough, you know, for the particular climate crisis we've got. Look, that's exactly right, Vivian. Governments can only do so much, and governments tend to follow rather than lead. And we're seeing this particularly at the moment in Australia where we have a government that is not really showing a lot of vision, um, particularly on climate change where things are going backwards. Businesses uh, can be much more responsive and proactive uh, as well as civil society. And then the advantage of that is that then governments respond and um, ideally we'd have a world where governments are leading and showing vision and putting in place policy frameworks and programs to support this rapid shift to zero emissions which we all know is required. In the absence of that though business can play a role as well as civil society and I would like to talk about the work we're doing with with local governments etc but um, Politicians are also approaching business, and we've seen people like John Kerry from the US who addressed the Business and Climate Summit last week in Paris, calling for business to fill the gaps and to not just fill the gaps but to take a lead. And governments can set frameworks and ideally will get a robust international agreement in Paris at the end of this year which will set the framework for businesses and others to take action. 
But if businesses are there saying, yes, we want governments to take stronger action, then that's uh, a fantastic story. Mm. Well, uh, I got a message this morning that there's a G7 summit on this weekend hosted by Angela Merkel, and she's proposing that they commit to a deadline to get off fossil fuels completely. And there's a you know message out for people to, you know, urge that this really do happen. But what implications would this have for Australia if there was a really firmed up agreement to absolutely phase out fossil fuels, take away subsidies first, but phase them out you know, worldwide? What implications for Australia? Well, firstly, um, a number of politicians and world leaders uh, from governments have been talking about the need to get off fossil fuels and uh, that we won't be burning fossil fuels. Um, the lead negotiator for the US said similar things uh, in Lima, uh, Peru, at the climate negotiations in December last year. Our fossil economy report shows that there are enormous risks for Australia remaining an economy that's based on fossil fuels and that the world is shifting rapidly and setting policy signals to shift rapidly away from fossil fuels. And we need to be taking this very, very seriously. Our key trading partners, China, India, Japan and South Korea, who import a lot of our um, coal, have all announced varying uh, uh, varying um, ways in which they will be getting off coal. Mm. India's announced they won't be importing coal in three years' time. China has reduced its coal consumption by 2% in the last 12 months and has reduced its imports by 14%. Japan has announced... Uh, radical measures to improve and to increase the uptake of renewables. So the Prime Minister's current philosophy of digging up as much coal and getting it out um, is, is flawed. Uh, our government should be taking an approach of seeing these, these, uh, these macroeconomic shifts internationally, preparing for them strategically and and um, and and encouraging businesses to make this transition and to be putting in place frameworks where people can transition in a smooth, yeah. uh, civilized fashion, yeah. rather than in a boom bust fashion, which mm. is what is going to happen inevitably. The transition will not be smooth. We've seen seventy thousand people losing losing their jobs in Australia from the mining crash. We are going to see further job losses in the coal sector uh, from all of these events, and these are international events. Mm. And they, Australia is um, poised on a precipice mm. where we need to be uh, rapidly transitioning our economy to diversify into renewables and to 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 really take advantage of our enormous resources and innovation potential. Okay, thanks, Stephen. And look, just one more point about the local government level. So federal governments, state governments, perhaps they're all playing politics or unable to pull us back from that precipice. But meanwhile, it seems to me local councils worldwide, you know, city governments are taking the lead. Is that your impression? And who have you been speaking to in Australia? 
Look, this week, uh, it, it, look, it's it's very, very exciting, Vivian, that uh, local councils are, in fact, taking leadership on, on this issue. And, and as I said before, this is not just to address climate change. This is to address regional economic development. It's to address job creation. It's to address um, having communities which are more resilient and uh, have, have people that have better livelihoods in these communities. And the demand from the communities themselves is, is very, very high. I've just this week run a couple of workshops in Seymour, north of uh, Melbourne, where we had the mayor uh, of, of Mitchell Shire Council. We had four councillors from Mitchell Shire Council. We had 90 people from the community um, talking about BZD's plans and how the various strategies and solutions I outline in those plans can be implemented in, in, in that shire. Is this high-speed rail, do you mean? Oh, this is everything. Uh-huh. Um, all of our research. Mm. This is renewables. This is um, buildings, uh, zero emissions buildings and energy freedom. This is high-speed rail. This is land use. This is revegetation. It's waste management. It's the whole spectrum, and that's very exciting. Today in Bonn, Germany... We have the mayor of Byron Bay speaking at a UN event uh, in front of an international audience talking about the work that he is doing with Beyond Zero Emissions in Byron Bay Shire. Um, That's very, very exciting for Byron Bay. It's also very, very exciting for BZD because it shows again... What is it? What are they doing? In, oh. Bar- in Byron Bay, what are they actually doing? Sorry, I, I thought... Um, I just thought... tell us again. I think the listeners have heard about it before, but just tell us again. Okay. Um, you might want to edit this piece. Yes. Byron Bay, as you will recall, has announced an intention to work with Beyond Zero Emissions to move Byron Bay to be a zero emissions community in 10 years. So Byron Bay is working with BZD taking our research as appropriate and looking at how it can be applied in renewables, in buildings, in land use and in transport. We're running a workshop on the 21st of June in Byron Bay. I'll be presenting our plans. The mayor will be there talking about um, uh, what, what can be done. We'll have various community groups there as well uh, presenting what they're doing and looking at the match between how BZD's research can be implemented on the ground. Okay, thank you. I think... And that was Stephen Bygrave, CEO of our parent organisation, Beyond Zero Emissions. You can find Beyond Zero Emissions at bze.org.au where you can find podcasts of this show and our Friday show, which is at 8.30 on a Friday morning. But I want to thank Felicity Milner, uh, a director from... Environmental Justice Australia for coming into the studio tonight. We've also had Stephen Main, who is somewhat of a rock star activist in the shareholder share, shareholder activism space. Thanks very much to the team, and we'll see you all next week.